Welcome to our second segment of this afternoon's program. It's Sunday, March 14th, 2021, and I'm your host, Kieran Murdoch. In Antigua and Barbuda, since around mid-February, we've been using the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine for our public immunization program. So far, over 19,000 people have been vaccinated, but the government has had to halt the program having limited, or having a limited supply of doses, rather. Uh, the Chief of Staff in the Office of the Prime Minister, Mr. Lionel Hurst, has been reporting on the subject of using the Russian Sputnik and Chinese Sinovac vaccines to continue the immunization program. And on Thursday, March 11th, Hurst reported that the cabinet was granting approval for the importation of such vaccines. Uh, and that he acknowledged that it was coming ahead of a decision by the Pharmacy Council to approve their use. According to Hearst, the Council approval of their use is pending as the Council is yet to receive some of the necessary data from the vaccine producers. Uh, then on Friday, Health Minister Sir Marlon Joseph said in Parliament that the decision to grant approval for importation was based on the expectation that if and when the vaccines were approved by the WHO or another body, their price would likely go up very rapidly and their availability uh, would likely diminish significantly as well. However, there is some measure of apprehension for some people who are wary of the Russian and Chinese products due to the lack of transparency that had been reported in the international media on the issue of their production. So in this discussion this afternoon, we wish to talk about these vaccines, what we know about them, and whether they can be considered safe and effective. Uh, and we'll also ask how geopolitics is affecting their global reception and use. Uh, joining this discussion, we have with us Dr. Stephen Morrison. Dr. Stephen Morrison is Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies conducts policy studies and analyses of political and economic and security issues around the world. And they focus on issues such as international relations, trade, technology, and finance, for example. Uh, Dr. Stephen Morrison is the director of the organization's Global Health Policy Center. He's a frequent commentator on U.S. foreign policy, global health, on Africa, and on foreign assistance. He holds a Ph.D. in political science, and we're happy to have him on this program. So good afternoon to you, Dr. Stephen Morrison. Thanks so much, Gideon. Great to be with you. Uh, we also have joining us Ms. Nadia Wells. Uh, Ms. Nadia Wells joins us from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. She is a senior research advisor at the Institute's Global Health Center, where she researches and teaches on the intersection of finance and biomedicine. She joins us to share insight into the Russian Sputnik vaccine. Good afternoon to you, Ms. Nadia Wells. Good afternoon. Pleased to join you. And we also have, uh, finally on this panel, Dr. Julian Tang. Uh, Dr. Julian Tang is an honorary associate professor and clinical virologist at the Respiratory Sciences Department at the University of Leicester. Uh, he joins us from the United Kingdom and he brings particular insights into the Chinese Sinovac vaccine. Uh, good afternoon to you, Dr. Julian Tang. Good afternoon. Um, Dr. Julian Tang, if I could begin with you, there's um, not much uh, uh, reported in the public, uh, at least in Antigua and Barbuda, in terms of us understanding the nature of uh, either Russian or Chinese vaccines. In, in terms of the Sinovac vaccine, uh, just broadly, what can you tell us? Yeah, so this is a whole virus inactivated vaccine. It's used as a very traditional uh, technology uh, that used to use influenza, for example, back in the 1960s, 50s, and 60s. Uh, it's a fairly reliable technology and uh, it does cause a fairly reliable immunogenic reaction. So you get some immunogenicity from such vaccines, uh, but they also tend to have slightly more in terms of the way of adverse effects, so called reactogenicity. Um, but a lot of this is given by the, the excipients and the adjuvants that are used with the vaccine. And so far, there's been no real published whole data set on these uh, Sinovac, Sinovac vaccines from China. 
Uh, but there have been uh, ad hoc reports from places like Turkey, UAE, uh, Brazil that have had uh, the use of some of these vaccines, uh, including Indonesia. Uh, and the um, efficacy is ranging from, well, effectiveness in the real life population ranges from about 50 to 80 to 90 percent, depending on which population study you look at. And um, uh, coming to you, Mr. Ms. Sorry, uh, Ms. Nadia Wells, uh, the, the, the Sputnik vaccine, uh, just uh, broadly, what could you tell us initially about it? Yes, so um, this is also a, a vaccine which is based on a relatively traditional platform, an adenovirus, an adenovirus platform, which is the same platform that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, um, one of the other uh, Chinese vaccines, Cancino, and the uh, Janssen, Johnson & Johnson vaccine used. Um, this platform has been used in other vaccines in other areas in the past and also was the subject of research in the 2002. 2014-2015 Ebola um, outbreak, um, where these platforms were also researched for the development of the Ebola vaccine that's now in use today. Um, it's a vaccine, the, the Russian one, the Sputnik one, is a vaccine which uses two adenoviruses. So um, adenovirus 26, which is the same as the Johnson & Johnson one for the first dose, um, and adenovirus 5 for the second dose. Um, and this technology of using two different adenoviruses was taken up by the Gamalea Institute in the belief that it would reduce any risk of people developing immunity to the vector rather than to what it needs to, which is providing immunity um, against uh, COVID. Um, so um, the trial um, that has been published, the interim data was published in February in The Lancet, is the, the main data that we have um, on this vaccine. Um, and it was found to have efficacy of 91.6%. I can talk a little bit more afterwards if you want about um, some more details about the trial. Okay. Well, uh, I'll come back to Dr. Julian Tang. And uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Morrison, if you, if you hold just a second, I just want to uh, ask a, a number of uh, vaccine questions before I come to you. Uh, coming sure. back to you, Dr. Tang, um, yeah, Dr. Tang um, the issue of what has been published about these vaccines and, and what is known about them has been an issue uh, that has been aired in, in the press, and that has given many people pause. Uh, so can you uh, sort of simplify for us, if you can, um, what would normally yeah. need to be published about a vaccine, and in the case of the Chinese Sinovac, what we do or don't know? So both the Russian and the Chinese vaccines initially were rolled out to the local populations in Russia and China before the phase three data were released. And particularly for the Russians, there's lots of derogatory comments from the British press about this and how you know, it broke protocol. But the fact that Galileo Institute, uh, as, as Nadia will probably tell you, has a long history of producing very good vaccines for the Russian population. Uh, and similarly for China, they do have a long history of producing you know, local vaccines for their local populations against things like Japanese encephalitis and rabies uh, that have been working very well over the, the several, you know, several decades. So in a sense, it's, it's no, it may not be any worse than the, the British saying that you know, first dose uh, only vaccine uh, with an extended first, second interval dose uh, should be okay. And also extrapolating the AstraZeneca efficacy to uh, the elderly and the BAME populations that were underrepresented in those clinical trials. So I think there's a bit of um, tit for tat here. Uh, and in fact, when the Russian vaccine results came out in February, they were even better than the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. And in fact, that team's working with the Russian Sputnik V vaccine team to try and improve their efficacy as well. So there's a bit, uh, there's a bit of irony there. The Chinese vaccine data has been submitted to WHO for further review. Uh, the, the, a decision is supposed to come out later this, this month in March, 
Uh, at least that's, that's what they were saying. And I suspect it will show that the efficacy may well be between a 50 to 70% uh, in general, which is actually no worse than the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine efficacy was in those clinical trials. So I think um, uh, Antigua should be you know, fairly confident that these vaccines will do what they're supposed to do, i.e. reduce severe disease and death uh, in a significant manner. Uh, and coming back to you, Ms. Nadia Wells, in terms of the Sputnik vaccine, um, would you add anything in terms of what uh, is traditionally known about uh, vaccines, uh, a comparison maybe between information that is normally published and what we uh, have seen published about uh, the Sputnik Sputnik vaccine? No, I think not in terms of, um, you know, the stage that these um, vaccine trials are at, because, again, this was an interim um publication in phase three and, and many of the other um, international vaccines are at similar stages. I think the only thing that is interesting about the study which um, Dr. Tang alluded to is that because these uh, vaccines were tested in the local community in the countries of development originally, um, this study that we have seen in February does really focus on a Russian population, which is perhaps not as ethnically diverse as some of the research that's going on now with the vaccine, which is being taken um, in countries like India and um, United Arab Emirates um, and potentially in other parts of the world where we will get more data on more ethnically diverse uh, communities. So I think that's maybe the only aspect of the trial, which was trialed in a, a group of people. 20,000 people, um, three to one. So three um, people received the vaccine for every one person who was put in the placebo group. Um, it was done in the um, between September and the end of November in Russia um, in 2020. Um, and uh, of the group, 66% were male, 98.5% were white, 1.5% were Asian, and 10.8% um, were over 60. So in the new trials that are happening now, um, they're, they're starting a trial for people who are over 60, they're starting a trial for people who are taking cancer treatment, um, so potentially immunosuppressed, and so tra starting trials in different communities to have more diversity of results at this point. Uh, and coming to you, Dr. Stephen Morrison, uh, on, a, on, a, on a global health level, uh, what do you think will be the effect of these vaccines uh, if they are uh, um, widely accepted, widely used? Uh, wh what do you think would be the effect of that? Well, it depends. It depends on what the outcome is. I mean, the um, we're looking, I mean, as a goal, I think um, we should be striving for as many safe and effective and diverse vaccines um, available to the world at affordable prices with good supply chains, good manufacturing capacity and volume and able to, to reach populations quickly. Um, the Russian pathway and the Chinese Sinovac and other Chinese vaccines pathways have been uh, uh, very unusual, set by a lot of controversy and skepticism that's still out there, although they're, they're making some headway, um, as we've heard from uh, from both Julian and Nadia. But it's important to sort of remember the the way, for instance, the Russian presentation unfolded. Um, there was a uh, in early August um, uh, great fanfare declaration that this uh, Sputnik V, Sputnik V, uh, was to be the first safe and effective vaccine and there was going to be all these partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. And it was met with great skepticism because of course there was no phase three data presented. 
uh, but it was clear that Putin was putting the full muscle of his of every element of his state, his sovereign wealth fund, his military, his communications apparatus, and the like. And also, it occurred at a time when there were systematic clandestine campaigns uh, to discredit the other uh, vaccines that were emerging from Western sources. So there was there was lots of concern at that time. Uh, oh, we've now had the release of the Lancet study in February of the Moscow trial. Uh, that's now being studied by the European Medicines Agency and others. And there are questions about the rigor of those trials, and those have to be worked out. They haven't gotten past the goalposts with EMA. They haven't gotten access uh, acceptability um, into COVAX. I think the way they went about rolling this out caused reputation, pretty lasting reputational problems. And of course, the bigger picture of what's happened in, in, in Russia hangs over all of this. Um, and so what happens? The other questions around the Russian uh, product is it's expensive. The Russian government is broke, doesn't have any money to subsidize its exports. It has limited manufacturing capacity. It's very reliant on other folks. So it's going out and striking deals with very important partner states and we'll see what is able to be delivered. I'm skeptical that they're going to be able to match most of this. And quickly, the marketplace, the global marketplace for vaccines is going to be transformed. We're going to see Novavax come on stream very soon. We're going to see massive volumes come, come forward from many of the other Western uh, vaccines that have been approved and are moving forward, but have suffered some manufacturing setbacks, but they're overcoming that. So the marketplace, the global marketplace is going to be much different in two, three, four, five months time. And you have to look at the Chinese options and the Russian options with those in mind, both safety, efficacy, quality, and rigor of the data they're presenting. The Chinese have, have been extremely slow in bringing forward credible data to, to assuage fears of the, uh, of the, Amer of, of the, of the public. Uh, there's great skepticism on these vaccines in both Russian and Chinese publics. Uh, they have a ways to go, and they're going to be forced into a much more competitive environment very quickly by very high-quality vaccines coming forward in high volume that have gone through full, full rigorous phase three trials and publication. Uh, Dr. Julian Tang on the issue of uh, the vaccines. Uh, how big of an issue do you think um, the transparency matter is? Because that really is uh, the repeat concern that everyone has, uh, is that their understanding was that um, the, the presentation and the information and the rigor uh, was not as it should be. Uh, is, there, is there any current information mm -hmm. that you have that, uh, that conflicts with that? And, and how big of an issue do you think the, the transparency is? Well, the data hasn't been fully published or you know revealed by WHO yet, so I can't comment on that. But I have to say that I think there's a lot of politics in this, and uh, certainly if you look at the FDA's um, <clears throat> approach to the AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, they found it quite quite kind of um, shocking that the AstraZeneca vaccine trials done in Brazil, South Africa, and the UK and the USA had different um, placebos, different controls, one was a meningococcal vaccine for one shot, the first shot, and then uh, saline for the second shot. We had different interviews, uh, intervals between the first and second doses. Um, so that kind of um, rather unstructured trial has eventually shown some use because of the UK's approach to uh, increasing the interval between the first and second dose because they had that kind of variable data which other trials didn't have. 
And by comparison, you know, Moderna and Pfizer, Biontech clinical trials are very clean cut and very neat and got FDA approval very quickly. <clears throat> so I think you need to be a bit careful about um, disparaging the vaccines too much because of a lack of data. Uh, in fact, they could still be very good just because the data was presented in a slightly different way doesn't mean they're not good. Well, do you think that we are likely to see um, the the necessary data? If you, well, I would ask you if you, if you ac uh, accept that there is any necessary data still pending. Uh, and if you do, uh, are we likely to see that forthcoming um, soon? So, I mean, to be cynical, anything that people publish, you have to take it at face value, like, you know, the Lancet studies on the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as the Russian Sputnik V and the earlier uh, candidates for the Chinese vaccines. We can only assess what they publish, what they put in print. And of course, being a researcher, researcher myself, sometimes when you write something, it's kind of almost like a summary of, of what you did or what happened. It's not every single uh, detail that you can actually put into that paper. Sometimes you can put it in appendices or online supplements, but a lot of what you see is is what you get. And I think the Chinese um, have been actually quite careful not to interfere or comment on the uh, various countries' effectiveness that have been reported from Turkey, UAE, uh, UAE, Brazil, for example. And they've just let those countries' populations present those, those real-life data in their own way without really commenting or trying to defend the vaccine in any way, which could be looked at in two ways. One is that, you know, the Chinese um, are really letting those countries present those data for themselves without interfering or being accused of, being, of interfering. And the other is that they just, you know, uh, don't really feel that um, they, they, they have no kind of um, stake in what those countries say or do. And I think that's why they sent their data to WHO, because they know there's a lot of bias and prejudice against their vaccines in the way that they rolled them out. And I think certainly the US has um, ongoing political economic issues with both China and Russia. And I'm, I'd be careful about um, how, you know, some, some, some uh, parties may view those vaccines because of that. Uh, Ms. Nadia Wells, uh, the Sputnik, for example, um, you know, the geopolitics of, of, of East and West comes into play there. Um, how much uh, do you think that uh, the issue of the, the sort of uh, political uh, lens of viewing the situation, how much do you think that obscures the actual uh, scientific facts about it? Um, well, I think it's been, as as the others have mentioned, I think it's been a factor for many of these vaccines, and these won't be the only ones. I mean, the big battleground now, as um, Mr. Morrison, Dr. Morrison um, just mentioned, is going to be around manufacturing. There was a summit held by the big um, pharmaceutical, international pharmaceutical companies last week discussing um, bottlenecks and how um, to scale up production for the world um, as quickly as possible. And, and India is a very key player in that as well, um, as they have very big part of the global um, vaccine manufacturing capacity. So I think these kind of geopolitical shifts are important for all um, of these spaces. And I think we're also in an unusual environment where, you know, countries from what we sometimes term the global south are playing a very big role at the moment. I agree that this is going to change over time as different vaccine candidates come through and some of the bigger manufacturers that we would be more used to seeing in the vaccine space are going to come through with their um, candidates, um, which were maybe later in the trials. But I also think um, that it's very true what Dr. Tang said, that as we see studies come out from different countries, we are going to see data presented in different ways. And that is very confusing, even for scientists to understand at times, um, because the data will be presented differently. 
Um, as we've seen with some of the um, vaccines, as we've worried about variants, um, the fact that studies have been done at different points of time in different parts of the world has been incredibly helpful. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example, that had a trial in South Africa at a point when we really need to understand effectiveness against the variant that first emerged there um, has been really helpful. So I think there will be more noise, if I can say, around these um, trials as they come through, and it will affect many of these um, different countries. And the geopolitical framing is, is you know, just part of, of the way the world is mm. these days. I think the WHO pre-qualification is important, and um, there are several Chinese and two Russian vaccines who have who are on the WHO list um, to be looked at. I think um, one of the last year, one of the CEOs of one of the big um, multinational pharmaceutical companies, um, when there were fears of interference in the timing of announcements of, of results in, in the US around November time, as you can imagine why, um, I remember him saying, um, if, if ever people in some countries don't feel comfortable necessarily with their own regulator, the fact that regulators all around the world are looking at all of these candidates and are all going through a process, as you mentioned, yours, you do not have a, an emergency approval uh, mechanism, nor do some countries like where I am in Europe, and therefore the level of data that countries that don't have those procedures need is different. Um, that can also create some um, some differences um, in, in how things get reported um, and people's concerns. That's certainly been the case for AstraZeneca as different countries have taken different views on what data they need to approve it. Um, but again, the most important thing, as I think your government is saying, is just to have access to um, what we can to keep people safe as quickly as possible. Well, very, very briefly uh, on the question of safety, and you, you may have you may have stated it um, earlier on, but I, I would ask you again, uh, just for clarity, uh, is enough known now about the Sputnik vaccine uh, to conclude that it is safe? Well, in the, I mean, all we have is, is the trial. And in the trial, there were 45 um, adverse, serious adverse events in the vaccine group out of 15,000 people. And that's certainly, you know, a comparable number to other trials. There will be more results coming out. I believe the India trial will be coming out soon, um, so that will be also something to watch. But your regulator will be looking at um, at this data and be comfortable with it when they decide uh, whether or not to approve it. And Dr. Uh, Julian Tang, uh, just before I go back to Dr. Morrison, Dr. Tang, uh, the same question in terms of the Sinovac vaccine. Uh, in a simple sense, is enough known about the Chinese Sinovac um, vaccine uh, to conclude that it is safe? Well, it depends on what you mean by enough. I mean, certainly it's been brought out to several populations, including that's of Hong Kong, uh, and I'm still in touch with colleagues there. And I think Singapore also uh, ordered some doses. <clears throat> and so far, the spectrum of um, adverse effects, you know, apart from these uh, recent so-called deaths associated with uh, recently post-vaccinated people, I, I don't see any uh, anything that's unusual compared to other vaccines. The, the, I mean, they're both... Uh, both AstraZeneca and the Sinovac vaccines have had a few deaths associated with post-vaccinees, uh, but um, certainly these, this is not uncommon if you roll the vaccine out to a large population in which you know, there are many causes of death, uh, regardless of the vaccination or not. And WHO has just come out and said that the AstraZeneca vaccine-related deaths are not related to the vaccine, uh, sorry, AstraZeneca post-vaccine deaths are not related to the vaccine. So I think from what I've seen so far, I'm not seeing any alarm bells uh, really uh, going on with either of these vaccines so far. And uh, Dr. Stephen Morrison, overall, the, the, the distribution of uh, vaccines globally, uh, how do you think that has been managed? What's your view as to how that's been managed thus far in, in, in your view? 
Well, it's been terrible. Um, let's put this all in context, right? I mean, the the wealthiest, most powerful countries in the world uh, pre-purchased uh, the mass, the overwhelming, the overwhelming uh, majority of, of current and future doses. So they've locked those up, and these are the countries that are also facing the worst outbreaks. And so that means that it creates a de facto um, huge gap in access uh, by low and middle by the by low and middle income countries on a timely and affordable basis. The U.S., the U.K., the European Union, the the key states within Europe, uh, the Canadians, uh, other wealthy uh, wealthy countries that have bought up large stocks have been loath to commit those stocks, those surpluses today towards meeting the demand of low and middle income countries. They're under intense pr pressure within their own countries to quell, to control the pandemic outbreak. And they've come under increasing pressure uh, for that. Uh, Macron in France has, has put forward the idea of a 5% allocation with few details, but the debate is intensifying around that. I want to emphasize that the situation we're in right now that you're seeing in your country and elsewhere is as follows. You're, you have a country that can turn to the COVAX facility if you're eligible and perhaps get 20% or slightly more than 20% of your demands of your needs covered through subsidies, subsidized supplies coming through COVAX. But the supply chains for COVAX have been highly problematic. So you may not know exactly when that's going to arrive and what actual volumes. So you're living in that uncertainty and you know that under the best of circumstances, you still have to figure out if 20% does get delivered, how do you get to herd immunity? How do you get to 65 or 70%? And if you add in the variants that are proliferating through the world, you've got to bump that number up to 80 or 85%. So you have a gap of let's say 60, 65% and where are you going to fill it? And the, the most wealthy countries are not offering you much in the way of a solution at the moment. And you've got China and Russia and India coming forward with, with offers. The Chinese are offering uh, uh, unproven uh, vaccines or only partially proven that they have put through their own processes and not through the standard rigorous trials uh, at, for free. And the Russians are coming forward and offering them at a significant price, but again, having largely circumnavigated the normal procedures. Uh, and so, and, and, and these countries uh, are, 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 are being very receptive. So we're seeing pretty strong advance, particularly by the Chinese, less so by the Russians. The Russians are making considerable inroads in Latin America. Um, but but, but the, all of the questions around uh, the, the safety and efficacy and the supply chain and how much will be delivered are out there. So that's where we are right now. But the situation is going to change pretty significantly as Europe, North America uh, begin to get control as they drive down the, the very high tra transmission levels and as they, they head towards herd immunity, the United States is moving fairly rapidly in that, in that direction, is going to be sitting on 600 to 700 million doses of surplus by the end of the summer. And, and I believe what you're going to see is there's going to be a pivot uh, in those countries, in those wealthy countries that are going to be sitting on very large surpluses as they get control over their, over their epidemics. Uh, there's going to be a, cha a change in the politics around the use of those surpluses. Um, and, and that's going to change this dynamic and change the equation of decision makers in states that are looking to meet their requirements. Right now, 
they don't have much to turn to than the Chinese and the Russians, and they're taking those offers because those are the best offers they can find, and they're assuming the risk that they're not going to accept something that has that's dangerous, mm-hmm. even though they're accepting products that are not really fully proven to be not dangerous. Uh, Ms. Nadia Wells, um, there's a question on the board here that's asking about, um, in terms of authorizations and uh, the process for authorization uh, dealing with the WHO, for example, um, would you be able to offer any comment on, on you know, the, the sort of uh, process that the WHO has to go through before it approves a vaccine uh, to be used by countries around the world uh, in relation to the Sputnik vaccine? Um, yes, so the WHO um, have um, public data which shows um, where any of these candidate vaccines, at the moment I have the data in front of me, there are 15 uh, vaccines that they are looking at, some of which have passed through the whole process. Um, and you can see um, uh, some information about the vaccine, then you see um, when information was submitted by the vaccine producer to WHO, when meetings were held to discuss it, uh, when the file was accepted for review or whether they have gone back to the vaccine producer and asked them to come back with more data. You can see the status of the assessment and you can either see the date of when it was assessed and approved or when they expect it to be, or there are some which are the newer ones in the um, in the pipeline um, where, where those dates are not set yet. Um, so it is a you know multi-step process, but it's visible on the WHO website um, that anybody can go to look at for all um, 15 uh, candidates at the moment, some of which have gone through, obviously, the Pfizer and AstraZeneca um, have gone all the way through, for example. And uh, Dr. Julian Tang, again, I think you may have spoken to it a little bit before, but in terms of, of getting approval for the Chinese vaccines at the WHO level, um, any impediments to that that you could discuss? So, I mean, Nadia clearly knows the process better than I do, but again, I, I suspect it's the uh, the availability of certain types of data, the amount of data, and um, perhaps how it's presented that will probably govern this. Uh, and I think really it's, it's down to the Chinese to be very open about what they've got, uh, how they present it, and just like the recent investigations into the Wuhan virus uh, origins uh, from the expert uh, WHO group that visited. Uh, and, and, and Dr. Stephen Morrison, are there other countries in the same position as uh, Antigua and Barbuda, for example? Um, we were using the AZ vaccine. Um, the stocks, of course, are not as readily available as we would like. Uh, and we've um, been in discussion about uh, getting the approvals for uh, Russian and Chinese vaccines. Uh, how, how normal is this around the, the developing world? Oh, I think this is very common. I think that you have countries that are feeling that they've, they're left to their own devices, as I mentioned. They, they look at what the COVAX facility offers them, which is a generous subsidized access at some point uh, to upwards of 20% of their needs, which is intended to, to vaccinate health workers and the elderly and the most vulnerable to bring that, give them the great, give them a quick shot at protection. But the rest of it is kind of up in the air. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very chaotic and untransparent marketplace that we face today globally for vaccines. So you have lots of deal making, bilateral deals that are being cut. You have an increasing risk of fraud and substandard products out there. Uh, there's been some big discoveries around that. Um, and you have a lot of misinformation and disinformation uh, spreading, some of it very deliberate state-based 
uh, conspiracy theories and disinformation emanating from China and Russia. So it's a confusing, chaotic, untransparent marketplace. It's a difficult marketplace for a small country to navigate uh, and, uh, and make judgments about what's the best purchases or investments. And it's also changing really rapidly, as I'm trying to emphasize here. We're going to be having a completely different conversation in two or three months. Miss uh, um, Nadia Wells, do you think that um, vaccines uh, coming from Russia or, or China, um, would, would those ever be approved? Do you think that uh, national regulators in, in the United States, in Europe, uh, would ever uh, consider and approve, or are they considering those vaccines for approval, for use there? I'm not, not, I don't think that the US um, is considering it, but the EMA have received an application, the European Medicines Agency have received an application. Um, and um, Hungary, for example, has already started to deploy, as a member of the European Union, has already started to deploy the um, Sputnik vaccine in Europe. I think um, to your question that you just posed to Dr. Morrison, I think many European countries are asking similar questions because there's a real uh, shortage of vaccine. It's a different position in the US and in the UK where both countries invested a lot in production last year already um, and where production and manufacturing capacity is proving still problematic for many other parts of the world so that we do not have the same supply levels and ability to roll out vaccines as fast as the UK, the US and for example Israel. And uh, Dr. Julian Tang, um, the, the same issue uh, in terms of the... Actually, I lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and say it. If you remember what my last question was, uh, go ahead. I mean, I don't think I can add much more to this than, than, than uh, Steve or Nadia have added, but I just want to comment on the price of the vaccines. Now, the comparisons... Um, of the price is quite different from what I've seen so far. The the AstraZeneca is just about five dollars. The Russian Sputnik Five is only about uh, ten dollars, eight to ten dollars. Uh, and the Pfizer, Moderna, and the Russian uh, sorry, and the Chinese uh, Sinovac, Sinopharm are really selling selling for about thirty to forty US dollars per dose. So in terms of cost, the Russian vaccine is actually quite cheap. It's the second cheapest I've seen compared to the Chinese and or the uh, mRNA vaccines produced by the US. AstraZeneca is, is the cheapest, I guess, because it's profit, you know, it's not for profit in mm. terms of pricing. Well, so I think that's going to also impact on what people will find uh, available and affordable. And they may have to take some, you know, flexibility with how the data has been presented. Um, and in terms of rigor, well, rigor can be defined in many different ways. I mean, the FDA rigor is definitely different from the EMA rigor or the UK uh, MHRA rigor. Uh, and some of those uh, different rigors are actually acceptable to those countries. Julian, my, my question would be, I mean, if the Chinese are largely giving away their vaccines, that's, that's fundamental to their strategy, to the diplomatic strategy of building influence and, and nailing and further fortifying the alliances they've established under the, under the uh, One Belt, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, okay, so theirs is free. The COVAX 20% is heavily subsidized. AstraZeneca is pretty inexpensive. J&J is coming in at purportedly at cost. The Russians are coming in at 10 a dose. Yeah, the, 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 the high ticket ones, the Pfizer Moderna are out of reach. They're out of reach for handling purposes also. But it does, it does I, that mix tells me that the Russians have, are gonna be, are gonna have a hard time marketing their product at 10 bucks a dose. To countries that are low on, low on cash, 
and they got the Chinese offering them stuff for free. Well, uh, I'm a virologist, I'm not a politician, but I mean, certainly, I think the performance of the adenovirus vector vaccines do have an issue, uh, a limited longevity, as, as Nadia pointed out, the, the host immune response to the adenovirus vector will require redesign of the Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca and the original Sputnik V in, in years going forward. And I think that will increase the cost over time. But to be honest, I think all these vaccines will, pro will protect against severe disease and death, which is what they're mm -hmm. supposed to do. And I think that's the bottom line. How much of that you want to then, uh, how much of those you want to then look at with regard to like milder symptoms and or onward transmissibility post-vaccine, um, I think those are fairly mild points, uh, mild endpoints in terms of vaccine efficacy. Uh, and eventually, if everybody's vaccinated, even if they get mild or moderate disease or this ongoing uh, transmission post-vaccine, as long as you avoid hospitalization and death, like we do with the flu vaccine, because that's not a great vaccine either, um, I think most people will be fine with that. Uh, Ms. Nadia Wells, um, we do have to bring this segment to an end. Uh, we have maybe a minute left. I, I want to give you the opportunity to give us the final word. Um, you know, our segment this afternoon was really aimed at the fact that um, there are um, uh, new vaccines, new in terms of we haven't had them in Antigua before, um, that will uh, possibly be in Antigua for us to use. And there's a whole lot of uh, politics, a whole lot of uh, misinformation, uh, a whole lot of uncertainty that has surrounded the issue of, of Russian and Chinese vaccines. Um, so bearing that in mind, could you leave us with our final word? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the important thing for you is, is that you, you, you have your regulator with your own processes that will uh, do their job. Um, not having an emergency approval means that they will do the same job as they would do on any other um, medical product that they're bringing into Antigua. Um, and so I think you can um, trust your authority um, to, to do its job. And, and also understand that, you know, many countries around the world are facing the same issues and questions. Um, everybody feels everybody as individuals having lived this last year feels this need for speed especially a very tourism facing economy like yours which wants to and needs to see um, business go back to normal um, but i think that you can trust your your authorities to do their job on the vaccines that they bring in for the antiguan people and i really hope that we'll be able to come back and see you soon yes you had told me earlier that you had been to antigua before how, how did you enjoy it loved it loved it all right. Uh, with that, we're going to end this segment here. We want to say thank you to all three of our guests. Uh, we say thank you to Dr. Julian Tang, an honorary associate professor and clinical virologist at the Respiratory Sciences Department at the University of Leicester. I think I pronounced that uh, incorrectly at the start. Uh, we <laughs> also want to say thank you to Ms. <laughs> Nadia Wells, uh, who joined us from the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. She's a senior research advisor at the Institute's Global Health Center. And we also say thank you to Dr. Stephen Morrison. Uh, he is a senior vice president at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, he's the director of the organization's Global Health Policy Center. Uh, thanks to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.